Hi, it's Fraser here with a hugely exciting announcement. Every episode of the Spike podcast from now on is going to be available on video too. So you can now watch us on YouTube or via the Spiked website every week. This is a huge step for the show. And the only reason we're able to do it is because of the generosity of Spiked readers and listeners like yourself. When we say it's your donations and support that keeps Spiked going and growing, we really mean it. So check us out on video when you get a chance and let's get on to the Spiked podcast. Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me on the sofa today we have Tom Slater, Spike's Deputy Editor. Hello. And Spike Columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up today we're talking about the great unlocking, racial identity politics in schools and the push for a new PC blasphemy law. So Obviously, the big news this week is the great unlocking, 19th of July, no more social distancing, no more masks. Tom, this is something to celebrate, isn't it, really? It is something to celebrate. And it's probably no longer the big story of the week, what with um, the win over Denmark last night. We're recording it the day after that. <laughs> it's probably a terrible idea as far as stringing a sentence together today. <laughs> but no, that is definitely the big political story of the week. Um, and it's been striking just how much you get that sense that the more the risk of COVID recedes mm. and the more we start to go back to normal, the more batshit crazy everyone seems to get in the yeah. commentary and on Twitter, as people will have noticed by now, we've basically been plunged into like a kind of US style culture war over masks mm. over in recent days. People talking about how they're a good person because they're going to continue to wear them indefinitely, it seems like. Mixed messages from government about this. And also just the kind of dialing up a lot of the rhetoric in terms of what the government is doing and what it's trying to achieve. I mean, you've got mainstream newspaper columnists suggesting that us unlocking at this point, this far into everything, with the vaccine rollout being as remarkable as it is, is basically part of some dastardly plan to infect young people and children with COVID. Deliberately <laughs> and letting the virus rip and all of this kind of crazy language is being used. And Boris Johnson using the Euros as a cover for all, all of this sort of stuff. So <laughs> I think it just shows that even though we might be um, edging towards freedom on the 19th of July, not only are there ongoing restrictions that we'll probably talk about and things we're really going to have to push back on, but also the culture that lockdown mm. has sort of engendered particularly amongst the new elites, amongst the commentariat and the political class as well, that's going to take a lot longer to shift, it feels like. And and, and you've alluded to this uh, earlier, Tom, but I mean, a lot of the focus has been on masks, the removal of the mask mandate. Now, if anyone was being completely honest, this is not a major aspect of the, you know, of the lockdown or of the response to the virus. But why do we think it's engendered all of this hostility? Why has masks become so, tem- so totemic? Well, it's it's depressing because in the grand scheme of things to either criticise the government about or to get worried about um, with, you know, things like DNRs, um, still a controversy, the dealing with care home patients. That's or, the do not, do not resuscitate, resuscitate orders. On- yeah, all of that, that's, that's still going on. Mm. And yet we're obsessed with a bit of material and elastic that goes over our face. I mean, obviously masks are the, that kind of, it's a very visceral reminder of the pandemic. And we've said throughout this, the time we've been talking on the podcast, that the reason why it's not just, you know, the argument that, oh, why wouldn't you just wear it? It's because it is a real physical symbol of that social social isolation. But on the flip side, it's become, I think, a real symbol of whether or not you're a good person. So yeah. uh, Sadiq Khan um, tweeted being like, the whole point about masks is it's not about you, it's about someone else. Susanna Reid on Good Morning Britain did a big spiel to camera about this. And yes, we know that the science of masks, you know, what we understand of it is that it, you know, it's a social kind of protection. But there's a real anti-science element to this, which is misunderstanding what, it actu- what you're actually protecting yeah. and how masks work. 
in favour of basically becoming like a religious person wearing a cross. It's like you wear a mask to signal that you are still the right kind of person and that you will actually, you know, be, it's kind of virtue signaling to the extreme. It's like you will self-sacrifice even when it's not necessary to self-sacrifice any longer. You face your own identity and personhood for the good of the, <laughs> and, yeah, and, the community. Uh, you've tweeted a few things about this this week, Tom, I saw about the kind of, the kind of anti-vaccine uh, strain to all of this because mm. you have all these quote-unquote progressives who are, you know, so condemnatory of people who are anti-vax coming out and saying nothing's changed mm. and they've all either been jabbed or double-jabbed. So you think, well, this is a bit like the AstraZeneca scare. You're spreading false information about they're, where we're at. They're, they're choosing to ignore it. They're acting yeah. as if we're in exactly the same situation as we were last summer only with this new rise in Delta variant cases. They're actively choosing to ignore it. it would, it's like the vaccine doesn't exist. Yeah. And I was pushing the boat out a little bit by saying this, but it, they are they are becoming like the kind of acceptable wing of the anti-vax movement. Nothing else could justify why they're carrying on in this fashion. Either they're iffy about the vaccines and they're just not coming out and saying it, or this is really just about them chasing anti-Boris retweets and they don't really care about yeah. the facts. <laughs> but there's just so much about this. It's about politics and culture warring and virtue signaling. And I think we've seen this throughout the pandemic, really. I mean, the reason that so many really important things, which have been horrendous mistakes, whether we're talking about care homes, whether we're talking about the inability of people to properly self-isolate when they've yeah. got COVID, when they were a positive case, because um, they would feel that they would lose money if they did that. The fact that all of these kind of massive gaping holes in the system were never dealt with. The fact in that case that the people were following the rules in general, but the number one, the most important rule, really, people feel that they couldn't follow because of the kind of um, economic impact that would have. No, none of these people have ever talked about that stuff. Yeah. They've talked about pre people breaking lockdown um, to the point of, you know, haranguing people because they're sunbathing in a park, as we saw at the beginning of all of this. Or they're obsessing about masks, which, as Ella was saying, even the supporters of this intervention will readily admit that it's a relatively modest measure. Why obsess about it so much? If these people are so moral and are so willing to give up on things, why don't they just shut themselves down? Mm. for the foreseeable future. That's probably the best thing they could possibly do to avoid yeah. the spread. They Stay won't do it because yeah. it's not about actually, this. it's not about anything which has to do with a kind of sober reading of the evidence and the concern about where we're going. It's about them. And yeah. it's kind of been about them throughout this, it feels like, in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, and um, you know, it is as the threat from COVID recedes, it becomes clearer. I mean, it becomes undeniable that it's political and cultural because, you know, we do have, um, you know, we know cases are rising, of course, but hospitalizations are rising a lot slower. Deaths are not really, you know, are not following because the vaccines are effective, because the take up of the vaccine is so high. I, I'm always shocked by, um, you know, one of the one of the real things that seems to have triggered a lot of these people is this phrase personal responsibility. You know, this idea that um, we simply cannot trust the public to do the right thing. They're talking about the same people who have voluntarily got themselves double jabbed. Mm -hmm. You know, these are clearly we can trust our fellow citizens to do the right thing, to look after their own health and the health of others. It, it just seems contrary to all evidence and reason. It's just prejudice to say that they can't. Yeah, I think the the concept of personal responsibility has taken a bit of bashing from both sides because, you know, at the height of the pandemic, there was lots of anti-lockdowners of whom I had a lot of sympathy for who misunderstood the social nature of this virus and harped on about their own personal responsibility and the risk being able to take as a healthy young 29-year-old, not understanding the implication of how the virus spreads. But, but equally, I think, and actually even more so, there was this sort of denial that anyone could ever make a sensible mm. decision. And especially now when, as you say, Fraser, we are not anywhere near any situation we were even a few months ago in May, rather than 
accentuating the positive, the government, I have to say the government in particular, as well as the media is being very, very cautious and keeps, you know, the ridiculousness of Boris Johnson doing a press conference at the start of this week at the same time as Sasha Javid, whatever that means internally, and saying, yes, we're going to do all these things, but I'm not going to tell you if it's going to happen for a week. It's like, what is this a soap opera? And we're all sort of waiting for your next pronouncement. And the knock-on effect is rather depressingly, polls as much as you can trust them show that lots of Brits are still very cautious and still don't aren't as excited as we might be or some of you know Spike's readers might be about the prospect of opening up and so faced with a population that's still mired in fear some understandable and some unnecessary you want leaders who are going to say it's all right let's yeah. come out now and maybe ride off of the football spirit maybe you know try and do things in other ways and say it's time to break back into normal but that that drive is really lacking i think that's a really important point because even with the mood music going into this week you know you had rishi sunak and yeah. robert jenrick i think talking about how they weren't going to wear their masks there was that kind of sense that they were going to try and make a bit of a stand here, draw a bit of a line under this. But in that press conference, Boris Johnson just completely crumpled, you know, mm. especially because he was flanked by witty and Valance who were being very, very cautious, who were talking about all the situations in which they would continue to wear their masks in enclosed spaces and all the rest of it. And when Boris Johnson was making that announcement, it almost reminded me of some of the announcements back in March last year. In fact, he was, he was almost apologetic about the fact that he was yeah. going to be reopening society rather than shutting down society <laughs> as it was back then. And it just shows that in terms of that leadership that we need to say that nothing is 100% safe, because nothing in life is 100% safe, but we need to get on with things. It's really important that society comes back together. He's incapable of doing that. And it it leads to a situation where actually the messaging becomes really confused because he's opening up nightclubs while saying that he personally will continue to wear masks in enclosed spaces around people he doesn't know. I don't know when the last time I went to a nightclub is, but you don't tend to be socially distanced (laughs) and only in your household bubble in that situation. Mm. Well, it's been a long time for so many people. (laughs) (laughs) It just, I think, and I think those kinds of inconsistencies give uh, the kind of lockdown fanatics, if you like, more time to operate because in a way he's preaching to their narrative which is that you you know things haven't really changed we still have to be very very cautious and that leadership that we would need to say we need to move past this because it's so important for society full stop has just been completely lacking in that respect and he's already buckled once what happened to the 21st of june so there is you know there's always this niggling worry that until we're out of it we're not out of it but there's also this i mean if if you even if you want to take the really cautious side about uh, you know the the sort of fear of strains and things like that there is this kind of ticking clock in the corner of your mind which says that if we don't reach a level of infection and cases among young people or the vaccine rollout by winter, we're going to be in trouble. So the summer is a mm. good time to, and actually even I think Chris Whitty's kind of mm. hinted at this and you would have to kind of really read between the lines because he's probably terrified to actually come out and say it along the lines of we need to, to use that controversial phrase, um, get to some level of herd immunity in the summer months when the NHS is not dealing with, uh, you know, potentially what could be quite a bad flu season because everyone has been so protected from normal germs that aren't coronavirus for the last 15 months that you want to be able to get to some level of protection before then and so it's there there is still this demonization of opening up as being let it rip rather than actually being a sensible decision to not only reiterate the importance of normal life Mm. but also to kind of plan to plan ahead so that we don't end up locked back down in the winter months, which everyone seems to be talking about, like, it's just going to happen as yeah. if it's like, yeah. oh, well, you know, that, it's terrible that we've gotten to the position where we think of lockdown as oh, just an inconvenience and forgetting all the very serious implications it has for people's lives financially, emotionally.
emotionally, psychologically. Was that whole argument as well? We've got to lock down for longer so we can avoid locking down later and all this sort of stuff, which is just, <laughs> it, it's just ridiculous. But I think we said this before on this podcast, but it's worth saying, especially at this point, you know, often when you're discussing the past year and a half, you kind of say, well, you know, we wouldn't have started from here in so many respects. But at the same time, if we did start from here, say, if, yeah. you know, even though we were facing this rise in cases, but still miraculously, you know, more than half of the population were very well protected against this. The old and the vulnerable in particular had been protected via something or other. Um, then we wouldn't be having this kind of conversation. But I think it's just so, so much that the mindset has shifted that it's difficult for people to get out of it. Um, and I thought Chris Whitty's comments during the press conference when he was talking about the various instances in which he would continue to wear a mask. You know, it's worth remembering that, you know, I've no beef with Chris Whitty. I think the way in which he's become a bit of a target is unfortunate. I think yeah. a lot of it has to do with the fact that the government very purposely put these experts out front and centre as a kind of human shield, really, mm. and that's regrettable. But at the same time, you've got to remember that, you know, Chris Whitty's predecessor as chief medical officer, Dame Sally Davies, she used to say that she thought about cancer every time she, you know, drank a glass of wine. These people are not the guides to living a good life, <laughs> really, at the end of the yeah. day. They have their narrow area of concerns. He's worried about COVID. He doesn't want to get it out of control. But ultimately, it is down to the rest of us to make these decisions now to balance these risks and to in brace freedom again and it yeah. just feels like all the mood music coming from the top at the moment is just pushing us in the other direction that's going to be a real problem it feels like it's so easy sometimes to waste hours binge watching video clips online and often it's just mindless entertainment that really turns off your brain but then there's wondrium this is a streaming service that will actually expand your mind it has so many engaging videos on a huge variety of topics, and you can guarantee the content you're getting is all academically rigorous and comprehensive. There's so much to stream on Wondrium, but I really love its programs on history and politics in particular. I've deepened my knowledge on everything from the French Revolution to the global economy, and I'm always going back for more. Wondrium has thousands of audio and video learning experiences to feed your curiosity. You'll get so much more out of it than you would from just searching the web or browsing YouTube. Wondrium's content is fun and exciting. It gives us access to a world of knowledge from top experts and storytellers. It's got documentaries, tutorials, how-tos, and more. It covers practically any subject you can imagine. Plus, it has all of our favorite content from The Great Courses Plus. So, join me and experience your own mind-blowing moments with Wondrium. Right now, Spiked listeners can get this exclusive offer, a 21-day free trial with unlimited access to the entire Wondrium library. Go now to wondrium.com slash spiked. You won't find this anywhere else. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash spiked. Wondrium.com slash spiked. So let's talk about a completely different uh, threat to freedom, free speech, um, some of the kind of identity politics that's moving into schools. Um, this week, quite notably, a school in Edinburgh has decided it's not going to teach to kill a mockingbird and of mice and men anymore to English literature students. Uh, Ella, you wrote about this. What, I mean, what have you made of it? Tell us a bit about the story. It's like copied and pasted from America, basically. <laughs> like, um, like all identity politics yes, these uh, days. And, and we're not talking about Huckleberry Finn this time. It's Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird and Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men. Um, a teacher at 
a school in Edinburgh supported by other staff members um, in the literature department, English literature department has decided that not only is To Kill a Mockingbird problematic because it uses the N-word, mm. it has to be said, in a, in a very specific way to highlight um, racism, not in a kind of gratuitous way, but that never, you know, that never comes into the context of why these people make these decisions. Um, but because it, you know, perpetuates a white saviour complex, because it doesn't promote um, discussion about decolonising the curriculum and because yeah. more modern books would be much better at teaching kids the kind of social values that are important, political values about racism. And it's a, it's a, a damning of Lee and Steinbeck as racism racist essentially mm. um, because it's saying that these books are crude um, that they would somehow damage students I mean it's you shouldn't be a literature teacher if you take that interpretation of those two books it's, it's like historically illiterate and it's illiterate in terms of the value of those um, two novels I mean you sh they should get kids to read The Vigilante by Steinbeck which is a horrific short story about a lynching um, and about the banality of audiences who who participate in the lynching by watching by you know watching it it's just such a reductive view mm. but it's become mainstream and you're and you these teachers expect to be applauded for being modern when actually what they're being is philistine and and if i could just summarize this in the most absurd way possible because uh, uh, you know to say just take a step back and think about this this is an anti-racist book it's particularly to kill a mockingbird that is being branded as racist and unacceptable for children i mean tom how did we get to that point well, I suppose the standard these days are, are you sufficiently anti-racist? Yeah. <laughs> by anti-racist, I guess. Actively anti-racist. Actively anti-racist or racialist, really, mm. is what they kind of mean these days. It's a strange one. I think partly it's because of the fact that it's hard to always find coherence in these positions. I think mm. partly because what you probably have is a kind of hysteria yeah. um, and a censoriousness and something which has kind of become unmoored from any other consideration. Because mm. if you, again, think about it for 30 seconds, you would recognise this as an anti-racist book, which has something positive to say. There might be language that might make people feel uncomfortable. But th the idea that you could study these subjects, you could talk about any of these subjects. But the thing is, this comes up across the piece. Remember, yeah. you know, a good few years ago, um, there was this uh, story coming out of Yale, Yale in the US, I think, where there was pushes to place trigger warnings on um, materials in courses that were discussing rape law. And you thought, mm. the thing is, if you're a student stu studying that area of law, you're going to need to be able to come to terms with this stuff. So it's absurd to apply these kinds of prohibitions. You know, if anything, you would become in that role in that area of work, someone who's actually making those people's lives better representing them. But again, it's just a kind of unchecked censoriousness, an unchecked kind of level of fragility. Um, and also a kind of sense in which any sort of stunt you can pull these days to demonstrate your anti-racist credentials is just immediately kind of green lit by these institutions. They almost don't think about it. And I think that just yeah. speaks to the kind of febrile atmosphere. That's why these things are so incoherent. They're just looking to make these poses wherever they can without necessarily even thinking it through half the time. And what do we make of the fact that, I mean, the, the ostensibly the grounds for removing Harper Lee's uh, To Kill a Mockingbird was done because the, you know, the head of the curriculum at the school wants to decolonize the curriculum which is, you know, a particularly strange word in relation to this. It seems to be, um, in America, the discussion is all about critical race theory. In Britain, the discussion is about decolonization. I can't discern much of a difference mm. uh, between those two things in practice, given that it basically just amounts to censorship and highlighting the race of everyone and, you know, discussing race um, from end to end. We also had um, the National Education Union come out this week um, talking about its guidance for decolonization, where... It essentially said that every aspect of the school day, from school timetables to um, the way the seats the, are laid the, out, the way the seats are laid out, uh, have, have their roots in uh, colonisation. Yeah. I mean, what do we make of this? 
Well, that I mean, but this is what happens if you don't call out the ridiculousness of things that pose themselves to be sensible. You know, like uh, the canon or a curriculum doesn't have to be set in stone. Mm. These things should be able to be flexible with the teacher even. You know, teachers should teach what they're passionate about. That's what's actually best for students. And so if that teacher wanted to simply teach Angie Thomas rather than Harper Lee, because she thought it was a better book. This is the young adult author who they want to replace Harper Lee with. Harper Lee with, yeah. Then, then maybe you think fair enough, but that's not what's happening. What's happening is that Harper Lee is bad and racist, and you have to address that badness in the curriculum with goodness in the mm. form of a, a a a kind of author that goes along with the decolonize the curriculum trend. And so it's it you know if you don't call out that, what you end up having is the NU saying m- mad things. I mean, Joanna yeah. Williams's column on this this week is brilliant because it just makes you realise that when these people get going mm, and they don't yeah. get challenged, you end up saying ridiculous things like that students should be in the classroom, not just taught about white privilege, but separated like that awful Channel 4 documentary and sort of taught to be suspicious of each other, that teachers who are white should talk about their whiteness in classroom. Mm. And as Joanna points out, the end effect is, you know, if you're a kid that gets to be, you know, gets read to at home, that gets courses, that gets tutors, that gets education from all the kind of places, then you can take this stuff on the chin. But if you're a kid whose only access to education is in that classroom and you're having your time wasted by this nonsense, you're going to come out worse from mm, it. Yeah. So it's actually, it's, a, it's an attack on working class kids' uh, le- ex- access to education and access to resources because you're just sucking all their time up with this crap, never mind the political uh, sort of, the, the dodgy political conformity to all of it, which yeah. is that that's making the classroom not an open space for debate. Mm. And I mean, you know, just on a, also, I mean, if you, if you're, if we're applying these kind of ultra woke modern standards to every sort of piece of literature that children have to study, everything that's on the curriculum. I mean, how could we ever study anything older than year, you know, yeah. 2000 or something, you know, yeah. what, what is left? Is that kind of war on the past thing as well? It reminded me, it's a slightly different point, but it was when, you know, they were trying to rename Gladstone Hall at Liverpool University. Mm. And one of the ideas they came up to replace it for was a live. Liverpool alumni John Snow from Channel Four. So again, it's that sort of thing where you yeah. can't really have any one of any literary or political heroes anymore mm. because none of them are going to be anodyne naturally, you yeah. know, given their context. But I think on the NEU report, I think the key phrase in there and the most alarming phrase was this thing about we need to make white privilege visible, mm. which I think really gets to grips with what, whether it's decolonization or critical race theory or whatever it is that we're dealing with here is that it's trying to make people, in this case, children, see race. That's really what it comes down to in Mm. in way, shape or form, talking about their relative privilege, constantly trying to racialise different areas of the curriculum, not just being inclusive of figures from different backgrounds, whether it's teaching history or what books you're reading, but constantly stressing identity and race as a core part of all of this. And that's what gets people so worried about all of this stuff. Because the problem is there's these very unfortunate labels. People present this as anti-racist. It's not, it's kind of pro-racialist. That's what it's trying to do. And these people are trying to do it quite explicitly. They reject colorblindness. They reject these ideas. They equate that with being chilled out about racism when Mm. it just means aspiring to a situation in which race is uh, completely incidental, in which pigmentation is as skin deep as it is. You know, that's literally it. And that, I think, is the thing which is most alarming about this, particularly when you're talking about children, because they don't see the world in these racially charged terms. That's the thing that was always kind of talked about in a slightly corny... (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. In a kind of corny kumbaya way, was that, you know, that kids don't see this stuff. Mm. They they might notice pigmentation, but they're not... They don't get all the baggage that is associated with it. That's one of the things that's so positive about them. To bring that into school, to try and make them see race in that context, Mm. that's really, really dark, I think. 
Are you looking for the perfect gift for the pro-freedom, anti-woke person in your life? Then look no further than the Spiked Shop. You can now get your favourite Spiked slogan on a t-shirt, hoodie, tote bag or mug, including ban nothing, question everything, love Europe, hate the EU and cancel cancel culture. And if you're a Spiked supporter, you can get a 15% discount on anything. Just go to spiked-online.com forward slash shop to browse our items and make your purchases. That's spikes-online.com forward slash shop. And finally, we should talk a bit about um, Naz Shah, who mm. went a little bit viral with her um, very striking intervention in the House of Commons this week, um, talking about well, Tom, actually, you should explain because you've written a lovely piece on it. <laughs> so it was it was very interesting intervention. So she was responding in the debate about the policing bill, mm. very draconian policing bill that we've talked about. There's one provision in that bill which deals with statues and monuments. And it's this crazy suggestion that if you desecrate or damage a statue or a monument or even a wreath or flowers laid at <laughs> the, the monument, you could potentially face up to 10 years in prison. Mm. Um so it's jacking up that to a huge degree. And when Robert Buckman proposed this legislation, he said very explicitly that this is to reflect the emotional harm that is inflicted when these monuments are desecrated, when someone scrawls racist on Winston Churchill statue or what have you. So Naz Shah, in a way quite uh, adeptly, latched onto this phrase and then mm. talked about the fact that when people, for instance, depict the Prophet Muhammad, the emotional harm of that is incredibly significant for Muslims across the country. She, off, she also name checks various other kind of religious figures, prophets, gods, etc., and says, I'm not going to say it's just a statue, but by the same token, you should say that it's not just a cartoon. Yeah. Uh, the instant backlash to this was heartening. I think even in, given all the problems that we talk about around um, free speech and the kind of new blasphemies, I think what she was basically doing was laying the foundations for a new blasphemy law. Yeah. Saying people shouldn't depict or mock prophets and that, in a ostensibly liberal Britain, still put people's nose out of joint, thankfully. But what was so interesting was that that was so of a piece with all of the different sort of censorship battles we're yeah. fighting these days. It is about emotional harm. I hurt, therefore I censor, is mm. kind of the uh, the mantra of the age, if you like. And it's in every conceivable instance, that's really what underpins it. So it was only really a matter of time, I think, before religious people cottoned onto this and tried to use it to basically just give blasphemy laws a PC makeover. But... It, that was the thing that was striking about it. It seemed absurd, obviously, to compare criminal damage to, you know, again, just a speech cartoon. and a cartoon is obviously a ridiculous thing. But because that kind of element of emotional harm was entered into it, it mm. did give her an opening and did open up, I think, a clear way in which this is how free speech is challenged these days. It's not through saying that you're being heretical or blasphemous, but it's saying that you inflict harm yeah. on the communities who hold to those prophets of those gods, etc. So that was an interesting intervention in that respect. I suppose even in, in relation to blasphemy and, you know, and to the cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad, it's probably the most explicit intervention in those terms, because what we've been dealing with when we, we've been discussing, you know, the Batley grammar controversy, the Charlie Hebdo controversy for, you know, for years on this podcast, what often we're encountering, especially among liberals, is, is cowardice, mm. you know, an unwillingness to stand up to those who want to censor. But here we have, you know, an MP essentially saying, actually, maybe the censorship is, is, is a good thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of cowardice, it's just worth pointing out that this is in the context of the police crime sentencing mm. bill, which, uh, 
in, in you know outside of parliament is widely criticized from everyone from sisters uncut to us to you know anyone who's concerned with the kind of extensive powers that patel and others are suggesting the police have to crack down on protests and speech and all sorts and the labor party comes out and says doesn't say oh actually it might be a problem that you give someone 10 years for yeah. uh, spraying up churchill they say no hang on we want a piece of that and mm. so the the blindness in the face of the, what this legislation means is really galling and cowardly but especially in relation to you know whether it be kim ledbeater's response to the batley um, grammar school situation which she said you know we can understand why people are upset i mean of course you can understand why people get upset about criticism of the religious beliefs that's the lowest bar to set that's not the question the question is was the response proportionate and if you're talking about balancing of harms the harm inflicted on that teacher who not only feared for his life but now has you know it in very real and practical terms but also has just you know it, how's he going to ever recover his reputation or his you know sense of self and his own um, bravery in a position where he's been nationally demonized. Mm. What about that harm, balancing the harms of a, you know, a handful of peop local people who decided that this was unacceptable, not even students, not even actually parents. And so there's a real disingenuousness to this idea of offense culture and harm, because what it really says is they pick their individual that's offended and then prioritize that offense over all else. And actually most often at the, at the uh, cost of collective good and political good, because when it comes to um, displaying you know, uh, opinions about either religion or, uh, you know, people, political figures like Winston Churchill, there should be no sacred cows. Yeah. We're now moving to a position where we only have sacred cows. Everything's mm. becoming sort of like, uh, you know, not just kind of religious like but cult like like you re you woe betide you if you speak out against uh, a, a figure or an idea, you kind of get hung it's really mm. appalling i think it's interesting as well because the word blasphemy and blasphemy law naturally sells a bit of a bad smell around it mm. thankfully but we do have all of these new blasphemies now i mean the perfect example of this i think is the fact that when scotland introduced its hate crime bill one of the things that was doing was removing its blasphemy law which yeah. sat unused on the statute book for a very long time and yet of course it uses this opportunity to introduce all kinds of new blasphemy laws around stirring up hatred in relation to all these different other groups and as Ella was saying, in terms of this is, there are so many sacred cows now, because what, who is my forsatter other than a heretic for daring to dissent from gender ideology and therefore has to be sacked and told her views have no place in a democratic society? You know, Harry Miller getting his visit by the police because he shares a trans skeptical limerick taking the piss out of um, trans ideology. Mm. That's blasphemy. Just, yeah. It's just the modern version of it. And I think that's one of the things that's worth getting to grips with, which is the fact that Again, people kind of compartmentalise these discussions, but the thing it all holds is this idea that on the basis of not heresy or blasphemy as we might previously understand it, but the idea that you might inflict any kind of harm or you might just challenge what is the prevailing orthodoxy, that's completely alive and well. If anything, you know, the state is getting much more tyrannical in the, in Britain in particular in terms of how it deals with this stuff. So, yeah, Naj Shah, I think, did everyone a favour in a way by just making all that stuff perfectly explicit. Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.